Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is A Lot To Learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. Without further ado, here's Austin. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. I have no idea what time it is because this is a podcast and you listen to podcasts whenever and wherever you are. Perhaps you might be in the middle of this South Atlantic on a sailboat right now because that would be very apropos of tonight's guest, Mr. Reed Stowe. Uh, Reed, welcome. Well, thank you. That's great. And you came to the gallery to uh, meet me and see the art and, and uh, do your show. Right. We are down in Chelsea at the Paul Calandrillo Gallery on 28th Street between 10th and 11th Avenue for the next month up until approximately Halloween. Reed's uh, exhibition will be up there and it is spectacular. We're going to talk about the art in a bit, but first we're going to talk about you because you have an incredibly distinguished record unheld by nearly anyone else on earth or maybe anyone else? No one. Not even close. What is that record? I uh, set out from New York City with the intention of doing the longest sea voyage in history without stopping, without resupply. And I said, I'm going to go a thousand days at sea and sail the oceans of the world and never stop or come to land. Three years on the water, never resupplied. Your ship, your boat was stocked with what it needed for the entire voyage, and that was it. That was it. I had to think of everything that I could possibly need to live, to eat, and to take care of the boat. And once I set off, that was it. I couldn't get anything else or bring, bring any, uh, go anywhere to get anything. Those were the rules. The rules came about in an interesting uh, sort of way. About uh, maybe 50 years ago, the first man to do a long sea voyage, he sailed around the world with one stop in Australia, Sir Francis Chichester. And when he arrived in England after 80 days at sea, Queen Elizabeth met him and the crowds came out and he was their national hero and he only did 80 days. But that was the longest that anyone had ever gone. 80 days, and, and he was a national hero, the yet you, you, you did that 10x over. Yeah, Queen more did, than 10 times. Queen, Queen didn't meet you, did, did she? She didn't meet me, and <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, it was quite a surprise. Uh, Describe this uh, vessel for our listeners. Like, is it a big boat? Is it a little boat? Is it a sailboat? Is it... I? It's a sailboat. Yeah. And so I grew up sailing and my dad and granddad built boats and I learned about boats when I was young. I sailed long voyages across the South Pacific when I was a teenager and, uh, and I built my first boat when I was 20 years old. And uh, I learned how to navigate with a sextant. And I learned all the seamanship skills, boat building, sail, sewing, and everything. 
And then I went to sea and started sailing on, a, on my first boat, which was a very small catamaran. And while on that voyage, I started to realize that I never wanted to stop. I could always keep going, and I loved it being on the sea. So then I had to think, what would be the right type of boat that would allow me to go on the long sea voyage at sea? So I studied boat design, and I designed what I called the ultimate long-distance heavy-weather sailboat. That means a boat that can go anywhere in the world and ride out the worst storms and keep going. And it had to be low-tech because the modern boats need to be fixed in factories by skilled boatyard workers. Right. But my boat was an old-fashioned boat. I can rebuild my pulleys when they break. And I have short, solid trees as masts. So the boat is a gaff rig schooner, which is a very important boat in the history of American maritime. And the back of the Canadian dime has a gaff rig schooner, just like my boat. And so the schooners through the 1800s and early 1900s were the best design and best sailing boats in the world. And they sailed uh, everywhere up and down the, the, the coasts and in the rivers and hauling the cargoes. And the, they're the most important type of boat in the story of American sailing. And that was the design that I copied for, for my voyage. So it's not a modern racing boat. It's a real sturdy boat that can ride storms and it has a big cargo hold that can carry a lot of fish or cargo or for me, what I needed for my voyage. That's, so that's, that's uniquely American, and you sort of put like an American stamp on it uh, because what you just described there is uh, it's, I'm, I'm familiar with, you know, the maritime routes and, you know, the colonial history and, and how we plied our trade. And uh, I, I really appreciate that you picked such a uniquely American boat and something such a utilitarian. You basically picked yeah. like, you picked an off-road vehicle. You picked the off-road vehicle slash semi-truck. You didn't right. pick the corvette or ferrari you pick right. the the day-to-day work-a-day ship that for centuries would just be the commonplace thing that we'd see and never blink an eye at and therefore it's the most practical for this purpose yes but at the same time nothing's more romantic than a gaff rig schooner and i i saw my first gaff rig schooner as a very young child watching the tv show called uh adventures in paradise so the gaff rig sails sailing across the sunset is, is a real symbol of the romance of the sea. That's awesome. And I really like that uh, as a New Yorker, I, you know, occasionally we get, uh, we get lost at the fact that we are a maritime city founded on maritime power, both dual being, meaning maritime as the, uh, the ocean and the harbor, but also the canals and the Great Lakes are all connected via New York. And these are sort of the same similar vessels that plied our New York waters. So I find it really great that was New York your, uh, Hoboken was your launch. Uh, well, that was only because the state park came into the west side of Manhattan and they kicked everybody out that wasn't uh, paying high dock fees. And, <laughs> I, and I had a, uh, the my host on the on the Pier 63, the frying pan bar. Yep, 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 yep. He was my host. 
and he kept me there and he kept fighting against them. Finally, they came with the police and said, no, you can't stay here uh, on, on, on our, on, in the state park. And they kicked me out right before I left. So I had to leave from Hoboken. That is, what a slap in the face. You it, couldn't leave from New York? Ah. Yeah, you know, and I was, I was uh, well, they did have another director of the state park. And he, he was watching me as I was preparing to go. And I was leaving the state park and doing historic voyages like the Odyssey of the Sea Turtle mm -hmm. and other voyages like that. And he wrote me a letter and said, it's so great to have you in our park. You bring charisma and character and color to our park. But the new state officials came in and they said, oh, no, you, you're not uh, uh, following all the rules. You can't pay the, the right amount of money. You can't live on your boat. Um, and, and they proceeded to kick me off. Oh, that is that's well, at least Hoboken got the uh, glory then. Yeah, um, but they, they hardly know it. Yeah, you know? right. They hardly know it. And where did you return to? To New York? I landed in New York, yeah. Excellent. That's yeah. amazing. Go through, because I'm, I'm putting together my mind's eye of the hold of this, of this vessel. Uh, what are you stocking with? 1,000 days of food, equipment, repairs, literally everything. What do I see when I open that hatch and I look down in the hold on day one? Well, what you see is... Uh, a, a whole bunch of boxes wrapped and taped in heavy plastic because whatever you bring on a boat, you've got to figure that there's a good chance it'll get wet, <laughs> whether from water coming in from above, below, or through a hole or a crack. Uh, even the best of boats find that they have leaks. So everything was wrapped up. So you basically saw a bunch of uh, boxes that were in the hold. And, and within them? Within them was uh, uh, all of the food that myself and my partner, Sonia, uh, needed for the whole voyage. And then, of course, there were piles of, of wood for repair, uh, extra sails, piles of sails, and some other equipment like that. And what, uh, what was the cuisine? What was the, what was the uh, Shea Reed experience? Well... <laughs> I'll tell you, it was gourmet because uh, I had Cipriani's was one of my sponsors. <laughs> I love that. So they gave me the best uh, pastas and tomato sauces and olive paste and pesto and tomato sauces, all these fantastically fine food and a lot of it. And of course, I wrapped it up so that, it, that, that nothing would happen to it and I stored it in the boat. So I ate gourmet meals when I was at sea. Uh, but the basic food was uh, rice and beans, all different kinds of rice, brown rice mostly, and mm -hmm. all different kinds of beans, and uh, uh, oats, the, the best oats. And I had hundreds of pounds of every kind of dried fruit you can imagine. But the key to the diet, and the most important part of it by far, was that I grew sprouts. You grew them. I grew them. That meant that I had fresh living food every day. Great big salads that were fantastic. Because I tried growing food on the boat. I tried doing hydroponically. That's why I was, was going to ask. Be, yeah. What was going to be the fresh food? Growing food doesn't produce pounds of greenery to eat, not compared to growing sprouts. 
when you grow sprouts, you, you soak them in water. And in a few days, you've got these living things that are the most healthy and the only living food in the, in the world that you might eat because everything else has been chopped and it's been dead for a while, handled by who you know, you don't even know, going here and there. And, but a sprout is only touched by you. And if you're conscious and you're touching it with love and you're touching it with rainwater that falls from the sky, you're eating super healthy food. And uh, I ate gourmet food. And I stayed healthy for all those three years. And when I got back, I told everyone, I said, I could have stayed another year at sea. I didn't come back because I uh, needed food or water or anything. And I was healthy and strong. I came back because my uh, partner was waiting for me on the shore with my two-year-old son who I'd never seen. That would be a pretty, that's an enormous personal sacrifice that you underwent for what some would say would be like, you know, uh, a, 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 a foolish, frivolous journey. Uh, I, I, not me. I think it's awesome. But I could see a lot of outsiders being like, uh, what, why? Just why? Why would you do this? Why would you put yourself under just this immense personal sacrifice and immense danger because you are on the high seas and even even your dietary restrictions are inherent dangers as we know from you know centuries upon centuries of people not being able to sail for more than like a month before dying of malnutrition or some sort of scurvy ish kind of thing um i mean there's the old uh george mallory like sir mallory why are you climbing everest because it's there you know why, Reed? Why? Well, it's a lot more than that. And, and you brought up a lot of things that I could talk about. But, but I just want to say that uh, all my life, I've loved the ocean. And when I was a kid, I became ecstatic. I loved the ocean. And like I told you just, just a few minutes ago, when I went to sea, I loved it. There, were, there is something so extremely beautiful about sailing a boat across the ocean. And you're free. It's the only free place in the world. You see, wherever else you go, you need visas, passports, permission. And to me, that oppresses me. When I go on the sea, I don't ask for permission. I look at that open sea and I say, yeah, and I'm prepared to go to sea. And I sail out and I set my course and I go anywhere I want to go in the world. And I'm free and nobody tells me anything. And I'm in the most beautiful, pure place in nature. And I'm starting to have lot of beautiful visions about how life is and how the universe is and I'm having the greatest time and so as I did that throughout my younger years and I had good success I went further and further and I went to Antarctica in 86 long before anyone heard of it and before any other sailing yachts went there I saw that as the ultimate challenge but Uh, I said, what can I do next? And then I said, well, I'll just do the longest sea voyage in history. So it was what going to sea on the longest sea voyage in history was a process of my whole life doing what I love. And so that was what led me to it. Of course, I've had to look and say, well, what's good about that for humanity? Because As I'm empowered and I'm being given gifts at sea, I'm very well aware that I owe to give more than I get. 
and I really want to help humanity. I want to help the human race evolve. And so how has that helped the human race evolve? And it's only obvious that a society that doesn't have explorers and visionaries and people who go where no one's ever gone will deteriorate. And you need to have people who lead the way into the unknown of the human experience. And by doing that, we lift our spirits up and, and see a much larger life. And so that's a lot how, how I saw it. That's um, that's a lot to unpack, and I love it. It's very it's very spiritual and emotional, but also there's a very practical factor in that. In that you did not do this willy nilly. You are an accomplished lifelong sailor. This is not something that you know Joe from Minnesota can be like. I want to go do that. No, this ultimate. is this is the. Yeah. This is, you are a professional and this is your realm and this it's, is your expertise. I always say, I'll speak about a lot of spiritual things because mm -hmm. I use uh, metaphysical techniques to help me do what I do. But I always say seamanship comes first. And so I describe to you how I was young, how I was building boats yep. and how I was going to sea and how I wanted to build the ultimate long distance heavy weather sailboat. And uh, I wanted to be the most seaworthy man. There's no man that can even come close to me. And there's a lot of men that are more skilled than I am. They're smarter than I am. They can build better boats. They can sail faster. and But uh, but they can't spend but a very short time on the sea a week. Why? Because they're afraid. So by doing what I did, I overcame the collective fears of mankind through the ages. And yes. the men that are skillful now that... Uh, it could be seaworthy. They can't leave for so long because they have to keep their money flow going. And they have to keep their security on land going. Because if you cut yourself, you leave the land, you leave that behind, you go out to sea, they all have to get back real quick. So they're really not seaworthy and their minds are really not visionary. Right. So I spent the better part of my life becoming a seaman and cutting myself off from all the needs and wants of people in the world. So I cut every time something came up that wanted to hold me back, I let it go. I let it go. I let it go. So that when I left and I went to sea, I had no strings pulling me back. I was free to be at sea and tune into the nature, tune into the sea, understand what the sea was, what it demands, and how I can live on which is a perfect segue because you were not doing nothing while at sea. We are right now surrounded by absolutely enormous works of art created by Reed uh, at the gallery. And uh, you were not idle. Your hands were not idle while you were at sea. Go through the process of what you're doing while you're, as you so poetically put, like, following the rain and feeling the sun yet you're inspired in this sort of metaphysical way to sort of start creating what did you start creating well i'll say this i've been an artist all my life and uh my mom saved my art and recently i found a box in the attic and when i was six years old i did a drawing that was 12 feet long that had hundreds of men and boats and the men and the men were preparing the boats to go to sea and sailing them. 
And this is a drawing that I made that's 12 feet long when I was six years old. So I had an inborn somehow that I was loving the sea and I was always creating art. So always created art over the years when I was sailing. But I wanted to say when you first started asking me that question, for the first two years of the voyage, I didn't get to do any art. Why? I was working so hard to sail the boat and keep the boat under repair. It was so difficult to do. If, if what it changed? If it Well, just let me say that if it was easy, it's so beautiful. And the ecstasy is so high, more people would do it. But it's very hard to sail a boat on the sea and keep her going because the sails wear out. I mean, one evening of, of improper alignment will wear a rope out and break it. How many ropes can you bring? And that's only what will happen in one evening. So keeping the boat seaworthy and keeping her going and handling those big sails, there's a certain great pleasure in it. But there's a lot of hard work. And after I was at sea for only a while, my sails started wearing out and tearing. If I was had been rich or had a sponsor, I would have had some brand new sails and some extra sets. But because it didn't happen that way, I had old sails and right away they started tearing. So I was sewing sails for two years. And I'm going to show you the stitches in the sails that I made. I can't wait. They're part of my art. Excellent. But so for two years, I was working to sail the boat. And finally, I got things under control. And, uh, and I sailed around Cape Horn. And I said, man, I've done this toughest sailing that no one can imagine. And now I'm going to cool out a while, because I'm a little tired. And, and I, and I sit on the boat and a wave rocks me. And you got to hold on or you're going to be thrown across the boat. So I decided to count the waves. And I counted one, two, three. Each time I was getting rocked. And then I did the math. And I said, geez, I'm getting rocked by 31,000 waves a day. How can the human <laughs> body handle that? How can What's going to happen to my inner gyroscope? I didn't know I was going where. No I mean, one, you're an astronaut I, at I, this I, point. I want to tell you about that, too. That's another important very important part of the voyage because back in the uh, uh, late 80s, I realized that if we were going to go to Mars, that that kind of astronauts they have now are not the right kind of people to sit in a spaceship for three years. They're mariners. I, so I, I, I published a paper titled Seafarers of Today Provide a Role Model for Spacefarers of Tomorrow in 1990 in the National Space Magazine, and then I started speaking in space conferences about our space analogous voyage and how by being isolated at sea without seeing land or other people in a dangerous environment where I could die. How immediately die, yeah. How was I going to adapt to that and keep going? Because that's what someone who's going to Mars is going to have to do. So the psychology that I had the, my power of conviction that I was going to stay out there and keep going is something that the uh, astronauts of the future who go to Mars, they'll want to study and know about me. And, of course, I can teach them, but they might not go anytime soon. But, but the whole thing of, of being on, on a boat at sea is like being in a spaceship in space. And, in fact, I was working with the Natural History Museum, this planetarium, 
the premier planetarium in the world had a 3D model of my schooner and the the main guy there, the genius there, Dr. Carter Emmert, was flying my, my schooner through space and teaching people how about what we were doing, how it was uh, leading the way for the human spirit going into space. And then he would call me up on a satellite telephone and and he'd know where I am because my position was satellite sent back. So he'd say, well, I can uh, see where you are now. And it's a, uh, you're having a beautiful sunset over there in, in the deep South Pacific. And, and then I would answer on the phone. I'd say, yeah, everything's good out here. And then, he, then we'd have a conversation and people would ask questions from the audience. So the whole space aspect and how my voyage is helping humans evolve off of this earth is a been a very important part of the whole voyage. I mean, the the analogy is is cut and dried for me. I mean, that first leap of the Vikings across the Atlantic, you right. know, in a immensely seaworthy, maneuverable, but open, open yeah. boat and just be like, let's see what's that way. And then, you know, the age of discovery, the Degamas of the world and the Magellans of the world, let's see what's that way. Mm-hmm. It's the same sort of you you have to step off the the known yeah and the and and that step off is the same thing i mean i just i didn't even i just said you're an astronaut sort of blithely and then you're like no i am it's which important. is which is which is which is amazing uh and also the uh the the when you see these nasa uh tests and stuff like that they'll like build the compound on a Hawaiian volcano or in a desert and they'll concentrate on the living in Mars. But I think you're right. You know, the living in Mars part is obviously going to be really difficult, but the getting to Mars part is going to be really difficult and confining oneself to a ship to have a daily routine of tasks and you have to maintain it and you have to maintain course because what are we going to do? We're not just going to send people up in a capsule and just have them sit there and atrophy for three, three years as it takes, I don't know how long it takes to get to Mars, but have them atrophy for months upon months as they get to Mars, because they're going to have to have duties and stuff like that. So what you have to do on the daily is completely analogous to what someone would have to do in a long distance spacecraft. Yeah. Mine was a space analogous voyage at sea. They have other space analogous tests. Like you said, in Hawaii, in a capsule in Moscow and in different places. Uh, but the main difference I draw is when I saw they were going into a capsule in Moscow and they were going to make $100,000 each when they got out after six months, I was going, put me in there because that looks easy to me. Put me over in Hawaii, easy. But you see, they were never living in an environment where they had to perform hard to stay alive and they were never living in an environment that was hostile hostile and that they could die so then the psychology is completely different they can have their little fusses together but they're not really living knowing that they could die with one mistake or nature could overwhelm them like it would in a spaceship so i lived in a state i had to overcome fear from the first moment i set out so uh they don't have to do that so how can their psychology compare with what it's going to be like in a spaceship because when you get sent on that spaceship to Mars, you know very well you could die. So you've got to overcome your fears of death. 
you don't have to in all probably the not coming other, back also yeah right. yeah so you have to overcome your fears of death which you don't have to deal with in the other tests and the other training things they've set up now but at C, you do have to deal with living next to death you know it's right next to you and you know one mistake and you could die and you also know that the sea mysteriously gobbles up the most seaworthy boats of man. So you're in a death environment and you have to come to terms with that. What, uh, we will get to the art because it is fascinating art and I to love, me, I, I love looking at it, but it's tied into everything. I, I'm yeah. So I, yeah. I haven't been able to bring that out, but it is. That's perfect because I want to get into, uh, we, we will get to the art. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, you're at death's door. No, death is at your door 24-7 on the high ocean, right? Um, and as you said, you've psychologically prepared yourself for this. You know, you've got the stamina, the will, and the preparation, and the lifelong seamanship to, uh, to tackle almost anything that the ocean can throw at you. But you must have seen some pretty hairy situations. I mean... What's that like seeing that on the horizon? You know, you can see the weather systems moving in towards you and go, uh-oh, this is, this is a thing. This is happening. Yeah, there, there uh, uh, is a certain amount of scariness when you describe like the giant black cloud that's full of lightning and you know a storm is coming and you're going to have to ride it out. Um, but after many years of sailing my boat, I knew what my boat could do. I knew it could ride it out. So I was okay with that. And uh, you would say, well, what is the scariest moment? You know, that, that I was in giant waves, in, uh, especially down below and riding around Cape Horn. And those waves are so giant, and they, they have rogue waves where the bottom drops out of, and they turn over big boats. And sailboats are built to turn over and come back up again. They're like a steel submarine with the keel on the bottom with ballast in the keel. Yep. So I was turned upside down and I was knocked over, but I was literally turned upside down. So, so that, uh, if I didn't have my cargo secured, it would have all fallen on the ceiling and then gotten all jumbled up. So I had everything secured for that ultimate moment when I might get, uh, turned upside down. Through you all, knew, you knew there was going to be a point that you would get turned upside down. Yes. I had to know that I had to know that. And I had, when I built the boat, I imagined that I was going to be in the worst storm possible. And everything I built on the boat was for that storm. Every little foothold, every little handhold, every little strap that was going to hold me in. Irrelevant in any other situation other than that monster storm. So it's right. just there. That is just there waiting for that eventuality. No, no use any normal calm day. Yeah. But when that eventuality is, you're damn happy that that handle's there. I, uh, and I prepared for that storm. And I was out there long enough and had enough storms that, uh, that I really didn't have fear. Now, yes, there, there is lingering fear. When you are out at sea, uh, you, you tune into nature and you become one with the nature. Well, that also implies that I become one with my fellow man. And that's more of a religious topic in a way. But I did have a feeling that I was at one with my fellow man. And so I'm having to overcome their fears constantly. They're not necessarily my individual things. I'm a, just a human. So I'm 
overcoming fear, even though I'm living there and I'm going, I've ridden it out and I know I can do it and I'm positive and I'm not going to let fear bother me or bring me down or make me unhealthy. Uh, and on the other hand, I always told people that my ability to do the longest sea voyage in history and to depart the touch of the earth longer than any human ever has, has to do with my ability to handle pleasure because I love it. I love it so much and I have so much pleasure that the pleasure that flows through me now is in incredible. If I couldn't handle that pleasure, I would quit, pass out and go to sleep. But I can handle the pleasure and keep going. So handling the pleasure at sea was something that I learned how to do throughout my life. So I was there to handle the pleasure of being at sea because let me tell you, when you're there and you're under the sun and the sea is all around you and the fish are swimming through your body and Ulysses is cheering me on, I'm having great pleasure. I'm having great ecstasy. And that was really what sustained me and helped me through the voyage was my feeling of that pure pleasure and the love that I was feeling. I guess I, I, I was trying to say, I don't get it, but then I do get it because I used to do long distance hiking and there would be miserable days of rain and patching your boots up and covered in mud and wet for days at a time. But then you rounded a corner and you came up and over a crest and then the clouds broke, your clothes dried out in the sun and then this vista just spreads in front of you and you go, oh, that's why I hiked through the mud for four consecutive days, this exact moment. I get it now. I get it. I can see. And you get these little spiritual like moments when you do, when you commune with nature like that. Uh, and I, I, I can get the, I understand what you're saying by not getting overwhelmed by the pleasure because you're probably, you're constantly looking at vistas that have never been seen by another man before that, that are uh beautiful yeah. yeah so it's really beautiful out there in all in all its forms as it comes and it's untouched and uninfluenced by man as far as i can see with with my eye i know there might be pollution down in the water uh and i know there might be less albatross above me now than than there was above magellan but um but to me it looks like uh um, pure nature and looks beautiful okay perfect now how did this pure nature inform on your art how did this ecstasy because i i'm i'm getting the uh the feeling of like are you familiar with hildegard von bingen uh she was a uh 12th 13th century abbess and uh and priestess and mystic and she saw visions and she made paintings and she uh, she communed with nature and she uh, she paint uh, she made classical not classical at that point but she wrote music and it's got this this mm, this ephemeral mysticism kind of old Christianity you know where it was like there was still paganism inside Christianity it wasn't fully codified and um, I'm not getting Christian, but you you have this you have this primal I had a vision kind of thing going on in your art. And that's what I'm getting from it, just from meeting you and experiencing you. And I hope I'm not grossly wrong. Well, yeah, very much so. 
in fact, I, I wanted to talk about something when you brought up the, the first Vikings to venture out into the unknown. And uh, uh, for me, when I built my first little boat when I was 20, it, I was going to cross the North Atlantic. It had no motor, no radio, no electricity. And it was a very small boat, and I was going to sail in the most primitive fashion. And I thought, well, what can I do to assure my survival? And I said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll call the gods. I need to make figure eights. So I'd been an artist all my life, but, I, but when I started wood sculpting, it was a matter of life and death to me. I needed to do it to stay alive. And I tapped into uh, the Vikings because those men who did that would never have gone if they hadn't had a sea captain who was a shaman he made a dragon on the bow of that boat and they looked at that dragon and they said, yeah, that dragon, he's going to take care of us. But that is the culture of every man on the sea. The Chinese had eyes. The Maoris had beautiful uh, figureheads on, the, on their canoes. And so ev every man in culture through the ages always had figureheads and, uh, or eyes or some way that they were communicating with the gods to take care of them. So when I say that I actively do it, I wasn't making it up. Me, I was tapping into what they were doing, and I was having actual results from it where my figureheads were speaking to me, and they were helping me, and they were reassuring me. So my art became uh, to empower me to do what I was doing at sea. So I spent my life sailing at sea, and I created this huge body of work, but I didn't really care about selling it or going into the art world or participating with society because I thought, man, what I'm doing is so exciting that nothing equals uh, uh, the majesty of uh, being on the sea longer than any human ever has. But I did it through the power of my art. The art helped me do it. So, And I'll give you a real good example of how I knew this at a very young age. Uh, there's a chart on a painting that uh, before I crossed the North Atlantic, I drew myself on the other side saying, hooray, I made it. <laughs> so I was using my art to program positive thoughts into my mind and program my future. So that's a lot how my art has been. It's been to help me do what I do. And, and I, rather than do something as graphic as what I just explained, I learned how to do things that were abstract that I knew were helping me at sea. It's sort of uh, totemic in, in a way, you know? Yes. I mean, and I, I'm just running through history of all the things that you just talked about. And like, you know, we name our cars, we name our airplanes, we, you know, we paint nose art on airplanes and during wartime and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, and without knowing it, you've touched upon it or no, without us knowing it, you, you get it, you understand it. I think there's something innate that we have to do that kind of thing. We name our horses, we name our cars and in that it gives them a sense of personalization. But really what we're trying to say is everything's going to be okay in this innately dangerous thing. Airplanes, cars, horses, locomotives, boats, these are all dangerous things where death is at the corner. So by naming it, we're like, oh, it's no longer boat, but, you know, she will protect me. Right. And I will have her have the figurehead on it so that the boat, to me, 
to nature conduit is fulfilled. I've named the boat, therefore I'm connected to the boat, and then I put the figurehead on the boat so the boat can tell nature, don't mess with us, and now the triumvirate, the three of them are together as one. I'm getting really pokey man. and poetic right now. Well, man, man has done this through the ages. Yeah. And so that's what, I, what I'm saying. That's what I did. And, and, and I took it passionately to the extremes so that I could say, yes, this art helped me accomplish what no man had ever conceived of and what yet no other man is capable of doing. And that is a perfect note to take a quick break. We're going to take a break right here. And then when we come back with Reed, we're going to be standing by some of his paintings. And uh, we're going to talk about them. Sound good? Okay. All right. See you guys in just one minute. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, welcome back. We are standing with Reed in front of one of his monumental works, which looks to be made out of fabric. Yes, this this is uh, one of my sales, one of my most important sales from the voyage. And if you feel it, you'll see how thick and strong this material is. What is this material? This is layers of um, synthetic Dacron sails. Okay. Okay, okay, these are these are the way sails are made in modern days. Okay, but look at this one. This one is an old-fashioned sail. So this one, this sail might be sixty years old because look, it's made of natural fibers. Uh-huh. These are all hand stitches by the thousands, hand stitch. So this was a very old sail that I got from an old boat that I painted on. This, is, this one's hand stitched, it's an old sail. I use modern sails because uh, they're, they're, more, uh, they're stronger and they're lighter, they're easier to put up, they last longer. And uh, so um, this sail was used on my boat uh, for a few years and at one point I held this sail up in the middle of my boat for six months and I say that this sail 
was flying in the wind consecutively longer than any sail in history. Well, wow. That's an odd thing to say. But, but, but it's but a great it's, thing it's to true, say. Because what other boat was at sea for that many that's such a long or time. Or even if they were, what boat had the technology back in the day to maintain the sole same sail People were for never, that duration? They were never at sea that long. Well, and also the yeah. materials of the time could not have Held lasted up. that long. They could not anyway, have lasted that so long. This, this but is they a, were never at sea that long. This is a so very accomplished this sail. This sail is a historic sail that was up That's longer amazing. than any sail in history. I love that. So, and, and because we're also doing something that is completely taboo, well, never do this but I am with the artist but I'm actually touching artwork and this is giving me the heebie-jeebies as a lifelong art goer yeah. where I'm like don't touch don't touch don't touch and uh and well, Reed I, is like touch I really want you to touch because I love it you'll feel the vibrations yeah and you'll you'll start to get the things that are in this sale because now you've got salt on your fingers from Cape Horn <laughs> because that salt was driven into the sale right and so it's it's uh it carries with it all the experiences that it's had and so and it's more yeah. than just a beautiful visual object it's uh, um it's three-dimensional and it's actually fourth dimensional in a way because it has with experienced my, time it with has. my eyes that yeah. see what isn't seen by normal people I see the, the, the vibrations of this painting go off the front and the back. Well, you've so also out been here, intimately attached. This, this sail yeah. is literally your lifeline. This and thing kept you there alive There were certainly times years. when I was afraid, when I was pulling it, that I had to get it down in time before the wind was too much because and the boat was going to tip gone. over too much. Yeah. It was going to break or whatever. But eventually what did happen was I was in a storm and the sail was already so old and worn out and shredded that I left it up and I left it until the storm turned the sail into shreds and I watched it tearing and I just was it was just a fantastic experience and I knew that I was going to save it and make a painting on it yeah and that's what I've done good good job sail you did yeah, you good did job it. sail now you're now you're gonna uh live live your life uh, um, astounding people who, right, who, who right. look at you and they're going to know part of this history because that's going to be the story that's going to come with the sale so when they look at this piece whether it's in a home or a museum or wherever this story's going to go with it and people are going to understand the things that I'm telling you now I, I'm getting all I'm getting all choked up and these ropes too are these the actual practical ropes there's, that you there's different ropes yep. on my sails that, that, that I've used myself yep. also and uh, and there is also uh, collaged into this sail. Um, you see this face. Yes. So I that do. was a painting that I did at another time. This was a painting that I did. Yes. And so then I put in my artwork from other years are also on the sail. So um, the sail has a mixture of many things in it. So it's about the image that's in it. Yes, you can look back and you can see an image and you see images, but it's really also about the feeling and the texture and, and the abstract qualities that it has because your eyes might look at it and you don't see anything. It looks like abstract uh, colors and, and movement, but then you have to look a little closer to see that there are figures in it and there are other things happening. And, and I call this uh, self-portrait on a crooked cross. 
And there is the crooked cross. There's the crooked cross, and there's the self-portrait yep. of me hang, hanging on it, yep. sideways, kind of flying off. Yep. So it takes a while to see these things because uh, of the, the feeling of the sail comes off. You first you see these rough ropes and, and these patterns of, of colors, and it takes a little while before then you see the, the uh, figurative stuff in it and the, the stories that are with it. And then you look a little closer and you see, well, that might be a horizon. That might be the ocean in the background. That might be the sunset. But you don't see all of these things until you look for a while. No, there's a lot to explore. And you're right. I would not have seen half the things unless I had the artist himself explaining what was happening. Uh, and I think it adds uh, a a fourth dimension to it because now I'm imagining the time and I'm imagining this being up in the winds of the South Pacific or the North Atlantic and torn to shreds but still having its innate value. And you said you imagined this being up. So it's like a being. Yeah, yeah. It's a being. It, it has its own presence, its own quality, its own life. It is animated. I've and, got a hardcore... And it is a being. Yeah. I've got an old pair of boots. I bet they'll never be able to be resold again. Uh, but I just can't throw them away. I just can't get rid they of have them. have the soul in the character. Exactly. If you were an artist, you'd put them in your art. I was, but I'm not. I, that's so not that's what I've done, because I can show you how I've taken... Uh, torn sails and, and, and worn out material from the boat. Well, let's and look at, I, I'm told that you did something that no one else had done before, which is you invented GPS art. You invented uh, the practice. We've got people all over the world right now who go out for their daily runs or their walks or their bicycle rides and they turn on their smartphone app that logs their miles and checks their calories and they'll run and they'll spell I love you Cindy or they'll draw you know, a picture of a balloon dog. You did this decades ago. Yeah, you drew and we are standing in front of another one of Reed's works which has the actual charts that you use to navigate right. and then you just started drawing at sea. Well, uh, when you speak about the fact that I invented GPS art, uh, before I left on the voyage, I was here in Manhattan preparing for the longest sea voyage in history. And I said, well, you know, I don't have enough food, I don't have any mo money, my motor's broken, but I got to do a voyage, so I'm going to just go 200 days. And on that 200 days, I'm going to remind the world of the ancient wisdom of Aesop's fable, so I'm going to draw a turtle out there. So I gave uh, 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 Associated Press my map with the turtle drawn on it. And here's a picture of it right here. Look down here and you can see the turtle. This is the Associated Press uh, graphics. Here's South America and Africa and between the two in the South Atlantic is the turtle drawing, the turtle that I gave them. And then they, they put the boat here and they said, well, here's where he's going to carry his food. Here's the wind generator, how he's going to get his power and the solar panels. And here's the living quarters on the boat. And here's how the sails are. And so the Associated Press did a big story about the first GPS art that was ever done. And at the time, we, I wasn't thinking that. I was just thinking, I'm going to go out to sea and draw a sea turtle so that I can try to help inspire and heal the world. I didn't realize at the time that, that, it was, that I was doing something no one had ever done before. But that voyage uh, informed uh, many of my other voyages. And I intended on the thousand day voyage to draw 
beautiful things at sea with my course, but I was just sailing out of New York City, and, and in the middle of the night, I'm on watch, and I got my little coffee, and I'm in the pilot house, and my chart is there, and, and I'm looking all around, everything's beautiful, and I'm back, and I'm having a sip of my coffee, and suddenly we had a collision with a ship. What? Right out of the harbor? Uh, only a few hundred miles out of New York City. I didn't know that. Yeah, so when we hit the ship, I, the boat went bang, and I was knocked over, and I looked up, and I, and, and I saw this scraping of this giant black wall going by the boat, and then it was by, and I was past. And it was gone? No, it went past me. Yeah. And, and then I shouted to uh, Sonia, my partner, we've been hit by a ship. And, uh, and then I said, you know, like, are we sinking? So uh, I uh, got my ship to shore radio and I said, ship in the night, ship in the night. This is the schooner Anne. And they answered back. And I said, you just hit us. And they said, uh, uh, well, do you want us to rescue you? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> Just a minute. Wait. Yeah. Don't leave yet. Let me see if I'm sinking or not. So I checked my three compartments. I checked the motor room, which, which has floats and alarms, and, and, but no water was coming in. And I went out on deck. I had to be careful because the front of the, my boat hit the ship, so my bowsprit was broken off. So I lost two out of four sails. They were being blown backwards by the wind, so there were steel cables that had been broken off that were swinging around, and it was in the dangerous. black of the night. Yeah. So it was kind of dangerous. But I crept around, and I looked at the boat, and I saw some scrapes along the side, but I didn't see any holes. And I looked again inside. I didn't see any holes, so we weren't sinking. So I called the ship back, and I said, well, we're not sinking, so I'm not abandoning ship. And we said goodbye in the night. Did you ever find out who it was? Yes, we found out who it was. And it was, I couldn't fight them at sea, but it was a big shipping company, Mayor's Shipping, yep. and they were, they were denying it. Yep. And so uh, um, that was just some, uh, too bad for the little guy and, uh, and a big, huge shipping company. And so, but anyway, I thought it was all over and we had only we were only out a few hundred miles and I was fretting and I was saying it's all over for us after all after 20 years now the boat is smashed we've lost our sails the voyage is over and my uh, beautiful young partner who had never been to sea before she didn't freak out like I did she looked at me and she said but Reed, I thought you told me you could fix anything. <laughs> and so I had, So time to get to work. So here was this courageous lady who said, yeah, get to work, fix this boat. We're setting out for a thousand days. So that was what we did. And it took us a month. We drifted in the North Atlantic. The Gulf Stream took us out further at sea. We drifted for a month while I worked on the boat. Oh, you just to, let it go. Well, I couldn't do anything else. Wow. So we drifted for a month while I repaired the boat enough to start sailing again. And basically I had to wrap my 
chain around the bow of the boat and put it to shackles and put it on turnbuckles to hold the cables forward and keep the masts up straight. So I did the whole voyage with a disabled boat with chain wrapped around the bow of the boat. And when I did that, I lost one out of four sails. So that made the boat balance differently. It made it so the boat couldn't sail up against the wind as good. So I had to be very careful because if I was too close to land somewhere and the wind was blowing on me, it, I wouldn't be able to sail my boat off the land. So I had to be very careful from then on. But the reason I brought this up at this very moment was because after that I gave up my ideas for drawing art at sea. Aha! So then I knew I couldn't maneuver the boat. I couldn't do my art at sea. From, from now on, it was survival. We're going to keep going. We have to stay way out in the ocean, away from land, because we can't maneuver the boat. So we have to follow the winds and currents very skillfully to do the voyage. But then you're going to paint something completely different because you're going to be following nature's course. That's exactly the truth. And now I'm going to show you. So when you look at this chart, what you we see... We are looking at a chart right now of the South Pacific. The South is, America. Is ringed on the right with Cape, uh, Horn. Cape Horn and South America's uh, West Coast. And then empty. Yeah, okay. So I came, <laughs> I came sailing across the South Pacific. Yep. And by this time, my partner had to leave the boat. That's a whole nother story. So well, we'll, we'll get to, to we'll see later. if we yeah. can get to that. But so I'm alone and I'm all sad and I'm running out of water. I haven't been able to catch rain and I'm wondering what am I going to do? So I knew that if I sailed up to the equator, that's the best place in the world to catch rain because mm -hmm. it rains a lot there. So I sailed up to the equator, which is here. And when I got to the equator, I said, well, where's the rain? I'm going to wait here. So I pulled down my sails and then the current took me like this and like this. And then another current took me back this way. And I said, well, whoa, there's the Galapagos Islands. I don't want to get any near, more near. So I raised my sails and the wind took me back here and along here and I sailed here. This is all quite a few days now. Yep. Oh, I did manage to catch the rain while I was up here drifting on the equator. Yep. So I filled up my water tanks, that was good. So now I'm sailing down and then I'm looking down here and I'm going, oh, there's Cape Horn. Well, it's, it's winter time down there now. It's gonna be the worst storm. It's gonna be freezing cold. I don't wanna go down there now. So I turned around and started coming back up. And after a few weeks, when I got here, because my position was constantly plotted by satellite to verify the truth of the voyage. Yes, and you, my, you're still navigating in the old time-tested ways, but this is, this is your fail-safe. Yeah, I'm, uh, the, the GPS uh, uh, position uh, device on the boat is verifying the voyage constantly yes. to the company that, who's built that machinery that monitors the Canadian fishing fleet. Got it. So they gave me the equipment. They're monitoring the voyage and my friends put it up automatically on my website. Right. So at this point, I got an email from an old friend. He said, Reed, look at your chart, man. You've drawn a whale. <laughs> yeah. And, and I looked at the and this whale was looking exactly like a whale that was on a wood carving on the boat next to my chart table. And I said, yeah, I've drawn a whale. And if I change course right now, I'll get the flipper get the and flipper. I'll slim the body down. Yeah. So even with a disabled boat, I was able to change course and, and draw the flipper and come up and draw the body. And when I got here, I said, well, I don't want too many lines to mess the whale up. So I sailed out on the same line the that same I sailed route. in I see on. That. So you sailed into the whale on July 8th 
and you sailed out is that October 25th? Yeah, okay. Wow. So it's 5,000 so, miles in circumference. Oh my God. And, and uh, it was drawn by nature, like July, you said. Yeah, July, August, September, October, four months of time and 1,600 miles or whatever it is. And I can tell you, when I drew the whale, it, my whole spirit changed. Because before that, I was fretting. I was out of water. I was lonely. I, everything was breaking. I was sore from sewing sails all the time and sailing the boat. But when I, when I drew the whale, I said, wow. It did it for nature's you. Nature's speaking yeah. to me. And, and I know I'm going to be okay. I'm being taken care of. So after that, my spirit was, I know I can make it. And so I headed on south. And a, and a month later, I was going around Cape Horn. And that's all right here on this chart. And this is the original chart from the voyage. I can never do this again. Nope. And I can never replace this chart. And that's why this painting is so empowered and, and so incredible. And it has other stories on it like that. But this is the main story. This is my main chart. When I knew I had the opportunity to do this show in New York City, I said, okay, I'm giving it my very best. And that's my best. Amazing. Well, we're going to wrap this up. Please tell everyone where they could follow you on Instagram and the Twitters and all the stuff. And uh, tell them when they could come down to the gallery and uh, check out your work. Well, uh, I'm sorry. I'm not a... Uh, uh, tech guy so I'm not doing Instagram and Twitters excellent uh, um, <laughs> please don't <laughs> I, I, we do have a website that's called beyond 1000 days it's the stories of what's happened after the thousand day voyage but if you just Google the longest sea voyage in history that's me Google the longest sea voyage in history and you'll there's tons of press tons of stories all kinds of stuff about the voyage now my art show here in in New York at 548 West 28th Street in the heart of the biggest art uh, place in the world is going on at Paul Calandrillo gallery and it opens October the 3rd that's tomorrow night Thursday night from 6 to 9 and will be the opening for the show and lots of our friends are coming and people who have heard about us and art lovers and people will come and see the art that empowered and made possible the longest sea voyage in history. Reed Stowe, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.